All right, so uh, we are uh, walking through this, uh, this unexpected book that moves downward and downward, the spiral, and we have made our, uh, our way to maybe the most famous of judges. We have made it to Samson, to Samson. Uh, I, was, I was at men's group this week, and we were remarking upon how the fact that a lot of judges don't make it into the kids' Bibles. Uh, it's just kind of absent. Uh, Samson sometimes does. He sometimes makes it in uh, with a lot of stress on the hair and not a lot of, on his, uh, his other attributes. But uh, today, today we're seeing uh, the best of Samson, the very best of Samson, because it's not really about Samson at all. It's about the Lord's faithfulness to his people and how he brings about this miraculous uh, deliverer. He, he, he lifts him up in spite of the people's ongoing, ongoing idolatry and failure to worship him. He is more faithful than his people. And so what does he do? He kind of unilaterally and exclusively, he raises up this great judge and sets him apart as a great savior. And then we're going to see that, obviously, that is exactly what he does in Jesus Christ. There are so many parallels between Samson and Jesus, and we'd be pushed forward to believe in God's ability to raise up this Savior and that we would trust in him. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll look at this text. Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you as the great deliverer and the sender of the saviors and this morning we think of samson but most of all we think of jesus christ our great and ultimate savior and we thank you father that it was not because of us that he was sent it was not because of our great righteousness it was not because of our faithfulness but it was because of your enduring and everlasting covenant with your people it was because of your faithfulness it was because of your desire to save and so father would you uh would you give us hearts to receive this man this great savior and to enjoy him and, and lift him up with great praise and faith we pray in christ's name amen all right so we're going to begin our story in uh which looks all too familiar chapter 13 verse 1 and the people of Israel, again, did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, this is going to be the quintessential enemy of Israel for a long time. That Saul and David are going to have to take on the Philistines. And ultimately, it's going to come this test of, okay, who, who can ultimately destroy the Philistines? That'll be the the real proof of the ultimate king. But for now, they're under oppression. And there's a pattern that we've seen in Judges. And what's supposed to happen? They're supposed to have oppression. Then we're supposed to see the people faced with their idolatry. And they move into repentance. And they move into asking God for a judge. And the judge is raised up by the Lord. He delivers them and he offers them peace. All right. This is all we get this time. There is no repentance. There is no crying out to the Lord. Nothing happens. Now, last week we saw that 
At, at times like that, God can give people over to their sin. And at this final end of Judges, it's almost like God has realized that he has to take it completely into his own hands. He knows they will not repent. He knows they will not return to him. And yet he has this great covenant with his people. He has agreed to be their God. And so, no, they will not cry out. But he will raise up in the greatest fashion we're going to see in all of Judges. This great and wonderful Savior who is really, it's, he's only to God's credit to no one else's. And so uh, the passage goes straight into, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites who na- whose name was Manoah. All right. We have this one man selected out and it goes on. And his wife was barren and had no children And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now of all the people, of all the inhabitants of Israel, who does God choose? God chooses a husband and his barren wife. With with special focus on the, the barren wife, this nameless woman, Selected out of all of Israel. And we see, okay, if God is going to show his unilateral salvation and power and deliverance of his people, who better than the barren woman? Who can offer nothing to God. This family, they carry with them nothing but but shame and, and this promise that their life ends with them. And so what does God do? He chooses the, the worst of ingredients to work his salvation. I, I think of this, this, there's this goofy show uh, on YouTube where they have this like master chef and he's supposed to, and he brings all these ingredients for making his thing and then they bring this home chef and, and they might bring something else. And it's like, I mean, the home chef is always brings like olive oil and like the cheapest, toughest piece of steak she could find <laughs> and it's just a nightmare. And then, then the other guy's like, Here's my, my Wagyu steak beef, and it's my uh, truffled butter, and my Indonesian crystallized salt, and like all this stuff, and then they make them trade. <laughs> and then, all right, let's see how good a chef you really are. <laughs> all right, it's easy with, with good ingredients, but who gets the glory when the ingredients are bad? All right, this chef, he shows himself to be this amazing, amazing person. All right, that's God here. He gets all the credit when the ingredients are terrible. And so he chooses this family of all. And we realize this is kind of God's, God's habit. He likes to choose the barren woman. That he would give to her this great, great saviors and leaders of Israel. That throughout the stories of scripture, Sarah and Rachel and Hannah, Elizabeth, Some of the greatest leaders of all of Israel are given to barren mothers so that who gets the credit? God alone gets the credit. That people have nothing to offer and yet he gives this singular salvation with the the weakest and the most broken of vessels. Now, of course, that ought to and always point us forward to 
our true and better Samson, the Lord Jesus. Every time we see a birth narrative, we think, wow, like, look, look, a miraculous person born. And then, of course, we go to the virgin birth, the far more miraculous one. And we think of Jesus Christ who, you know, if, if God is unilaterally saving his people, he, he, sends, he sends God this time. He's going to take care of it. And what a glorious and beautiful salvation that comes, not because we have risen up and saved ourselves, but because our God has acted in spite of us. That Israel, Israel had totally devolved into idolatry. We think of first century Israel, of Judah, and under occupation, they have nothing to offer. They're totally steeped and powerless. They're weak. Their religious rulers are hypocrites, and yet God is faithful. And God offers, not because the people have offered this great repentance, but because he is a good and gracious and merciful God. Now what do we do with that this this morning? I hope you recognize that in a very glorious way, God has offered you salvation not because of anything in yourself. That if you stand before the Lord and you have faith, it wasn't because of you. It wasn't because you decided to, to turn your life around. It wasn't because you're a better person who just, you know, has chosen to do this faith thing. No, it's because God unilaterally and single-mindedly decided to save. And to send one who could save you independent of your brokenness and your sin. That he could, he could save those who have no role in this salvation except to receive it. That is the great beauty of Samson. That this, this nation, completely steeped in idolatry, finds himself with this great and powerful savior. Now, if you know that gospel, it gives so much freedom. You know that your Savior, he saved you not because of anything in yourself. That when you really don't deserve to have a Savior, let that, let that be a reminder to you. It wasn't because of you. And you can't screw it up. You can't lose it because it never was yours to attain. This is God's salvation and God's alone. Now, how does he do it? We're going to look at the second aspect. He sends an anointed, a special, a set-apart one. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. Yep. Uh, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. All right, so we have this, this weird list of rules, and he's a Nazarite from the, va- uh, from the womb. 
All right, these are stipulations that are set forth in number six. And what's a Nazarite? A Nazarite is a person who wants to kind of go through this special vow before God. They want to set themselves apart. And so for a period of time, they take on these special rules and they say, okay, I will not drink any wine or anything, any grapes, any of those products I'm going to stay away from. I'm going to touch nothing unclean. To stay apart from death is this picture of like my, my life is, is before you, my God. That no razor shall touch his head. To grow his hair and finally to offer a sacrifice at the end of the time of the vow. And so there's this special, special time. You take on these rules until you offer your sacrifice and you're done with this pledge before the Lord and you are taking on a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow. Now, it's a little weird this time because this is not a temporary thing. And Samson doesn't get to do it because he wants to. It is, it is placed upon him. And it's not just for a period. It, this is going from from birth until death, that he will be set apart. He will be different. He will be special and, and pure before the Lord. And if you know the story of Samson as it develops, it's, it's in maintaining his holiness and in, in maintaining how set apart he is in his allegiance to this Nazarite vow, he is given great power for salvation. That to the extent he is set apart, he is given power to save Israel. We see him wrestling with that vow. And others trying to, trying to kind of rob him of that special place. Now, why does he need to be this? All right, he's set apart because Israel's not. Israel's not set apart. This whole book of the Judges is about how Israel failed to set themselves apart. That they were supposed to flee from idolatry. Instead, they have gobbled up idols from every buffet they could find. And they were supposed to cleanse the land and, and, and wipe it clean from all temptation. Instead, they're intermarrying and building houses next to other nations. They didn't set themselves apart. And so God gives a special one to, to be the set-apart one on their behalf. Are we seeing some parallels here? A special sent one who is miraculously sent and born and called to be set apart from his mother's womb until death. All right, this is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. That this is how God seeks to save his people in the midst of their idolatry and their, their brokenness. We say, okay, how is Jesus set apart from the womb? Now, it wasn't kind of this superficial, outward way of looking different. No, it was that he alone would be called to have true holiness and true righteousness. And as he maintained that power in holiness and righteousness and commitment to the will of God, he had power to be our Savior. That's why Satan is so hell-bent on, hell-bent, yeah, um, on... Tempting him 
Because he knows that oh, if, if you get any stain on this spotless lamb, if you take this purity from him, then he is useless. Then he cannot save his people. The only way he can be the, the perfect sacrifice, the only way he can give us his righteousness if, is if it's spotless and perfect. I remind you of that because I always surprise people with this verse. In Matthew, it says that uh, we are, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, most people don't know that verse. They know the verse that says, try hard enough and be a nice person. Oddly enough, that's not in the Bible. All right. Be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And just like Israel, why did, why did Samson have to be perfect? Because Israel was not. And why, did, why does Jesus have to be perfect? Because we are not. We have not set apart our, ourselves in holiness and righteousness. We cannot claim any perfection in ourselves or any righteousness in ourselves. And so he sent this one to be different on our behalf. That he could give us his perfection. Once again, it's unilateral. It's one-sided. What do we bring to the equation? We bring our sin and our idolatry and our, our broken lives. And Jesus brings his perfectly executed life where at no point did he do his own will. At no point did he use his, his power for anything for himself. That every single moment he was loving and sacrificing and giving of himself in perfect holiness. Right. Do you realize that that's what you possess in Christ? That that has been gifted to you? perfect standing before your God. That you are set apart as a holy one just as Jesus was holy. That is the gift of the gospel by faith. Now, finally, there's this lingering part that we haven't talked about. There's supposed to be a sacrifice at the end of this vow. The angel of the Lord didn't mention it. And we start to see the foreshadowing of what would happen in Samson's life, that if he is to do a real Nazarite vow, there has to be a sacrifice at the end. We'll get into what that sacrifice looks like, but most of you know it. For Jesus, it's the same thing. That he is set apart not just for a perfect life, but he's also set apart for the perfect death, for death on our behalf, for the death that cleanses us from sin, for the death that would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That yes, he would gift us with his holiness and he would die to take away all unrighteousness and sin. That was the plan from the very beginning. We see it in part and foreshadowed here in the life of Samson, and the birth of Samson. Do you know that perfection? Do you know the perfection of standing in Jesus Christ? Do you know the freedom of having been stripped away from all of your sin in the death of Christ? 
that now you can stand before your father without any hindrance. I think of I think of my life and I think, well, so often am I weighing my life and thinking, okay, how 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 good was I today? How good was I yesterday? How was my week? And and far from my mind is this idea of the perfection that is found in Jesus. What freedom we would have if we truly knew that. And we lived under it. And we can enjoy this status before God who loves us and sees us in the perfection of his son. This is a great unilateral, one-sided salvation, is it not? But the passage doesn't end there. It should end there. But it doesn't because he's dealing with real people and their sin and their struggle. And so instead, we get to see uh, the response of Manoah, the husband, to all of this. And we realize, okay, there's a really great salvation out there. And then there's all of our responses in all of our foolishness and sin. And thankfully, we have Manoah to, sh- to point it out to us. All right. You know, remind you, who did the angel of the Lord come to? Her, the woman, the woman came to her. Manoah is not too pleased with that. And so he has, uh, here we go, verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. All right, what do you think of the summary? It's really good. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. That's fine. That, that accurately portrays all of the information that was given to her. All right, Nazarite, we all know that for number six. We, we're good. Uh, what she is supposed to do, she is supposed to not eat unclean things. She's not supposed to drink wine. All right, we're good. Here is his response. Verse eight. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent to us come to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. All right, we just learned that. His wife just told him that. And so this is a really weird prayer. All right, have you ever, have you ever asked someone something? And you're like, hey, like, what's, what's the weather today? And you're like, oh, it's like 20 degrees and freezing and, uh, and clear. And then they turn and they go like, hey, Alexa, what's the weather today? <laughs> Super frustrating. All right, that's exactly what he's doing. Like, like okay, well, I'll talk to God for you. All right, and, and. Now, God is gracious, and what does he do? Uh, God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. All right, why did God choose that? Because he has bad timing? No, because he didn't need it. If he needed, if he, she portrayed the message, but here we go. Uh, So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. 
And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is the child's manner of life and what is his mission? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. What does he say? None of your business. <laughs> On one hand, and like you already have your launching orders. I'm going to provide a savior. He's going to be a Nazarite. What is your role in all of this? Make sure your wife keeps to her diet. And that's it. All right. Why does this guy want to hear it? What does this guy want to know? He just wants to be in control. He wants to make sure that his, he, can, he can make sure that what happens needs to happen. This is the heart of all of the people in the time of the judges. They hear this great salvation, and what do they think? How do I make it happen? How can I make it happen? What do I need to do? What are the works that you have given me? Or at least tell me the whole plan so I can make sure you got it. When we hear of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, what do we, res- how do we respond? How, what, what questions do we ask? All right, too often we are exactly like this. And what do we say? Well, so what do I do? No, it's not about what you do. That's the whole point. We talked about unilateral, like one-sided. How should he have responded? He should have said, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will have faith that that's what you're going to do. Thank you, wife, for telling me the testimony of the Lord. We're good. All right, instead, what do we have? We have this kind of doubting Thomas mentality. Like, no, I I have to hear it from him directly. And I'll make sure that that what, what needs to happen happens. All right, you are cheapening the salvation of God. To the extent that you have to do anything, It's not the gospel anymore. It's not a gospel of grace. It's not this perfection that is given to you. Then you can hide in your heart this little nugget that says, well, I did a good job. And I did it right. And you could judge all the people who didn't. And you can come to God and blame him for things and get mad at him because you did such a good job. Or the little seed in your heart can say, can plant the doubt and say, well, Maybe you haven't done enough. Maybe you're not perfect until you've done this or that or this or that. And that starts to grow and pollute the gospel and pollute your joy. There's a reason he's kept out of it. There's a reason that we're kept out of it. So that remains his salvation and we can live under grace. Now, he goes on. Verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. All right, this is a big hint. Hint, hint. If you offer it to the Lord, he'll receive it. Uh, but Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. 
Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? All right, this is not a great question. <laughs> he should have already known. All right, we had, we had the Nazarite vow. We had the testimony of his wife, who seemed pretty sure that this was God. Uh, why do you ask my name, seeing it as wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering and offered on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. All right. We hear this, this great salvation. We try to attain it by works and we try to control it. And when we can't, what do we do? We, we start picking at the messenger. We start picking at God and testing him and doubting him. And Well, maybe this isn't real. Maybe this isn't really from you. Maybe it's, it's, it's not the real message. Maybe you're just trying to deceive me. All right. He should have known this is God. And he didn't need to test, but the Lord was gracious. The Lord responded to the test. He showed him that, no, this was the plan of salvation given from Yahweh, the God that they often forgot to worship. And then what does he say? Finally, Manoah, okay, 2021. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us these things, or now announced to us that these things are these. All right, at the end of the day, what does Manoah do? He he turns all of this blessing and all of this testing and all of this fighting to get his way into a curse. That he sees the, this great salvation and he thinks, oh, this is just God's plan to destroy me and to destroy you and to destroy us. All right. What foolishness to respond to so great a salvation with so such awful an interpretation doesn't even make sense. Now, unfortunately, in counseling and in, in talking to people, wrestling with their faith, people do this. You do this. I can find myself doing this. That we see the great gospel of Jesus Christ, and what do we see? We see, how dare God do it this way? What a disgusting, weird way of saving people to, to send someone to die on the cross. I think, well, tough. That's just how it is. Like, it's, it, it's great. And you have to receive it. And yes, yes, someone has to die. You are going to die. This is not the time to judge that. Or I've heard people say, you know what? Wait, so that means you have to believe in Jesus there's a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus. How dare God choose a way to save people that doesn't include everyone? That's not fair. I'm not going to believe. 
right? So you would choose not to believe for the sake of fairness to the world? All right, or worst of all, that seems like a really controlling way for God to do it. And that sounds to me like he wants to control my life and ruin my life and rob me of my fun happiness. And so, no, I don't want it. This whole gospel is probably a trick to destroy me and the life that I have. All right, have you ever thought that? Have you ever found yourself doubting that the goodness of the gospel that may, maybe he just came to rob you of life? I have. I'm betting some of you have too. All right, what foolishness. That we'd think that we could find better life and eternal life and greater life in, in the world here than in our Savior. We have this great one who is sent. We have this great deliverer. We have this one who took our place we have this one who who walked in our place and died in our place how are you responding are you responding with faith and with joy and with praise or are we looking like Manoah just trying to weasel out from the goodness of the gospel because we're fools Put your faith in Jesus Christ. See the Savior. See the great provision that God has given you for your salvation. And let us praise and worship him for all that he's done for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for yet another picture of the gospel. Father, we thank you for every nuance, that every, every retelling, that every type offers us, that we may understand every facet of the goodness of the gospel for us. Father, would you, would you help us to rest in the, the singular, unilateral salvation of our souls? We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he lived perfectly for us. We thank you that he died to remove our sin, to bury it in the grave. Father, would we receive him and love him and honor him? Father, would you send us out praising his name? And would you just uh, chip away at the little hardnesses in our heart? that we would live under the gospel in all its glory. We pray in Christ's name.